Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. It's time for another female first, which means we are once again joined by our good friend and colleague, Eves. Welcome, Eves. Hello. 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 You know, I got to say, I'm a little, I feel a little left out because I've been wearing my yellow hoodie all week. <laughs> and today is the first day I didn't wear it. And yes, I will openly admit I wear the same clothes several days in a row. You can judge me if you want. But Samantha and Eves are both wearing yellow. Well, it's true. I'm just going to say whose fault is that? Right. I'm just kidding. <gasps> oh, <laughs> just kidding. I'm just Eves. saying you weren't on the um, same wavelength as we no. were. I mean, I still feel the coordination. I mean, yellow and pink are good colors together. They're they very springtimey. Mm-hmm. So I feel like it was more of a theme day than a color day. If that makes you feel better, Annie. I, I feel that I could take it in multiple ways, but I'm going to take it in the way that does make me feel better. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. Yes. The only and best way. Yes, I am wearing pink, everybody. And it is getting, it's getting warmer here in Atlanta, oh, yes. Uh, yes, which is a problem for me as a podcaster in my home studio because <laughs> the AC has to be off. So you guys get to see my glistening face, we'll say. Well, right. I had to turn our air conditioning off so that we could do the episode without the roaring of the air conditioning. And I'm like, I'm going to have to figure out something because it's not that hot. It's hotter. But we know it's not the Georgia summer hot yet. Yeah, I know. And I'm like, I'm going to have to figure something out because this is going to be... A bad situation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mind you, people, not the Georgia summer hot yet still means that we've gotten highs of 70-something and 80. Yeah. And like over the past couple of weeks, which I am here for. I love it. But I recognize that other places are still firmly in the winter, right. in the winter situation. Like there's still snow happening. Um, yeah. Still light breezes. Still very, very chilly nights. So... Sorry for you, but uh, <laughs> we are living large and sitting pretty right now. <laughs> and we say living large, it hasn't hit the humidity yet, in yeah. which soon enough, it's going to be 90 to 100, but feels like 120 because of yeah. the humidity that the na- rain never comes. You think it's going to at any yeah. moment, but it never does. <laughs> I will say yep. the downside is the mosquitoes are out oh, now. Oh my goodness. Yes, they are. Yeah. Bugs well, are coming. Oh, the bugs are coming. <laughs> the bugs are coming. <laughs> yeah, and as Samantha and I are, you know, fully vaccinated as of yesterday, and the CDC has released, like, their new chart about guidelines for safety and mask wearing, and I was like, is it time to start running outside again? And there was a part in the back of my mind that's like, now, really? The bugs? It's right. hot, there's bugs, and it's humid, and this is when you want to restart? <laughs> <laughs> I guess, Uh, I guess. Before we started recording, listeners, we were having a really rousing conversation about, I've got a lot of questions that I want to follow up with both of you about breakfast, traveling for breakfast, making lists (laughs) about that, because I'm very intrigued as someone who also makes a lot of lists and loves food. And then... AR reading and Nancy Drew and Sweet Valley High, which Samantha says was kind of slutty somehow. <laughs> no, no, no. Not because it was, but because I was told that by my uh-huh. mother, who right. felt like this was going against, you know, religious ideas and her Christian beliefs and firmly believed Sweet Valley High was teaching girls to be promiscuous. Oh. And I don't understand that because all they had were boyfriends all of the series. <laughs> 
had boyfriends as, as if that didn't girls. happen in real life right, right. <laughs> essentially sweet valley high was exed at our house yeah mm-hmm. but nancy drew and babysitters club were fine. And when I say uh, Nancy Drew, I even read the new renditions, which were a little more risque. I, I talked about as the, the making between mm-hmm. Ned and Nancy, uh, which by the names, Ned, Nancy, Bess, and George, fantastic. Best movies ever. <laughs> and then like the Hardy Boys and all of that. But yeah, my mother, I don't know if it's because one person told her about it or she yeah. actually read. I've never seen her read outside of the Bible. So like, I'm not really sure where she got this perspective. But mm-hmm. it was firmly decided in our household, no Sweet Valley High. Wow. That's okay. fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I have a very infamous <laughs> occasion where my family only had, for a long time, we only had one TV, we only had four channels. So you had to like kind of fight who got the TV time. And I loved the show Roswell. And I like campaigned for my family, like, please let me watch an episode of Roswell on TV instead of having to rely on like reruns that happened at 2 a.m. or whatever. And um, they finally agreed and we all sat down to watch it. (sighs) I kid you not, the episode was called Sexual Healing. And the entire episode, the rest of the series was nothing like this. But that entire episode was about Max and Liz, the two main characters, had to have sex to survive multiple times. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm sitting there watching it with my entire family and I'm trying not to act as though this is a, an egregious thing that's happening. Like, it's totally cool. <laughs> don't read into it. The show is not like this. Like, disaster. <laughs> They're like, this is what you wanted, Annie? Mm-hmm. This? The silence was deafening. <laughs> they never let me watch it again. <laughs> Darn. So were you yeah. devastated after that? Did you know while you were watching it, like, man, I just ruined it and it wasn't even my fault? It felt like things were going right down the drain, Eves. It really did. Um, like that, that cold sort of child dread that feels mm-hmm. like your world is ending. They would let me watch it. They just never let me watch it around them again. I suppose that's fair. I should go back and watch that episode and see how bad it actually was. <laughs> right. It's very mild by comparison of things you've seen since. Probably. <laughs> Probably. Because Samantha and I recently talked about um, board games geared towards women, and we talked about computer games, like the Nancy Drew game you were talking about, Eves. Mm-hmm. And I would love to come back and talk about that, because I had a Barbie computer game that was sort of similar. It was like solving mysteries. Yeah. And I'm I here for it. it. I loved it. Yeah, so just so y'all know, I used to and still do play Nancy Drew computer games. They're super fun. They're just like mystery games, just like the Nancy Drew books are pretty tame. But, you know, you can choose your difficulty level and then you go through and you solve puzzles and then you talk to people and you figure out mysteries. And I was just telling them how it's often very problematic. But it's also a lot of fun. And I'm always here for a good puzzle too because like even in my... My older years, you know, versus when I first started playing it now, puzzles are really good for memory. Like doing things like that, I think about it in that frame a lot more because puzzles, word searches, Sudoku, all those kinds of things were things that I did probably more when I was younger. And it's probably best for me to do them even more than I did when I was young just because of 
the like the the advantages that they have for memory training and working your brain out as the muscle it is. I love word searches. Annie knows this about me. I love them. I love sitting mindlessly staring at whatever shows are happening and then getting different color highlighters. And hopefully the pages, I'm very specific about pages and all that so that I can mark it in different colors. Oh. That's, that's, that's another level. That's the level that I'm not <laughs> is, on. Is it? Okay. But that's I aspire amazing. to it now. So. <laughs> but yeah. here's the thing, though. When I'm thinking about all the computer games, y'all are talking very specific computer games because I'm like, I played Minesweep and Solitaire. Where were all of these other games? And I think I did the uh, Oregon Trail. Oh, (laughs) but those are all really good ones, too. Yeah. Okay, okay. I just felt bad. I was like, yeah, I didn't play that game. What's that game? (laughs) I really loved the Jumpstart series and sort of relating to what we were talking about, Samantha, with playing games that you've perhaps aged out of alone. Right. Um, I would, they said that Jumpstart games were supposed to be like, before you get into first grade, you play Jumpstart first grade and it would help you prepare for it. And I still think about Jumpstart fifth grade was really fun. I would play it again today. Um, <laughs> Jumpstart sixth grade was hard. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah, but they were fun. I, 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 I do appreciate like mysteries and puzzles and all that mm-hmm. stuff as well. That's what those games were. Yeah. Carmen San Diego is another good one. Oh, that one yeah. I did play. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I only played that at school. And so yes. you had to finish Same. your work faster mm-hmm. than everybody else and run over there. Yes. <laughs> That's great. Yes. The fight over the computer. Oh, yeah. Oh, it was yeah. legit. Like, it was... <laughs> showdown. People yes. cried. As they People should. Cried. That escalated. hmm <laughs> <laughs> Well, speaking of books that have been X'd, um, who did you bring for us to talk about today, Eves? Today, we are talking about Tadabai Shinde. So... There is, like a lot of other people who we've talked about, not a ton of information on her actual life that is accessible to me in the English language. But there is Sri Purush Tulana, which translated means a comparison between women and men. Um, And that's been considered the first modern Indian feminist text. That's something that I've seen it called many times. So that's what we're going to call the first today. She's also been called the first Indian feminist literary critic by some people. But there were a lot of other people (laughs) who were in India who were working on feminist ideas and feminist issues and challenging a lot of things that were happening there at the time. And yeah, I, I got a lot of the info and the quotes that we're going to talk about today from the translation and the accompanying essay by Rosalind O'Hanlon. So that that translation was done in 1992, I believe. And that is how it was kind of opened up to the more the English-speaking population and became more widely known and available, even though her name isn't one that said a ton in relation to, you know, conversations about feminism in India and general broad conversations. But yeah, obviously, there are a lot of implications. <laughs> like feminism is such a broad topic. It, is, it operates so differently in different cultures and different nations and throughout the course of history. So there is a lot, lot that won't be said today about what the book or the text meant during the time. Not gonna. I'm not going to dwell on what's right and what's wrong at all. Um, that's kind of not, not the purpose of this conversation today. But I will tell you about Tadabai's critiques, 
you know, what she was challenging and what she said about those things from her perspective, because her perspective, even though, you know, it was it was very singular. It was her own perspective within the broader context of what other people who were in the upper caste and in the mid to late 1800s and early 1900s in India lived by and thought. Yeah, a lot of stuff happening there. But Tadabai Shinde, that's who we are talking about today. Yes. And probably just by the first listeners, you know, that caused some waves. <laughs> the the work that she did. And there mm-hmm. was a lot going on in India when she was doing it. Mm-hmm. So why don't we jump into her story? Okay, so I'll kind of start off with some of the information that we do know about her. She lived under the British Raj, which was British rule in India. The 1850s to the 19-teens were a turbulent period in India. I feel like I say that a lot, but like, obviously, (laughs) a lot of periods are turbulent. Like, this one we're living in is... But, of course, there were a lot of uprisings. Like, there was a whole nationalist movement. There were infrastructure changes. There were people sowing division. Like, there was a lot happening in different realms of society. So, with that in mind, you know, that there was a a lot of other intersections of things that were happening with economy, with, you know, social systems, with gender. Like, all of these things were kind of wrapped up at the same time. She came from a prosperous family of Marathas, which was the dominant peasant caste in Maharashtra. Her family lived in Buldana, which was a town in what was then Berar in central India. And now that's the state of Maharashtra. And her family, you know, her father was Bapuji Harishinde. He was a head clerk in the office of the deputy commissioner in town. And he was also a member of the Sati Shodak Samaj, which was a reformist and anti-Brahmin truth-seeking society that was headed up by Jyotiba Pule. So you might have heard that Pule name before because that, that Pule name also comes up in conversations of social movement and feminism in India. Um, the society supported abolishing the caste system. They supported equality and freedom for people who were in the lower caste. They also supported the education of women and lower caste people. And they encouraged widow remarriage and Western education. And widow remarriage is a thing that we're going to revisit because it's something that Tadabai focused on. And the society also opposed the domination of Brahmins and child marriage. And that's a broad overview of the things that they supported and the way that they operated. But that's just to say that these are things that were going on in Satishodak Samaj that they were supporting that were like already ideas that were being engaged with at the time and in the realm of Tadabai because Pule was a friend of the family and it's said that he influenced Tadabai in the way that she thought and the things that she cared about as he and his wife Savitri Bai Pule also worked on issues of the oppression of gender and caste in India. So Tadabai had four brothers and she read and wrote in Marathi, English, and Sanskrit. She was married and her husband came to live with her in her father's house rather than her leaving her home to go live in her husband's household. It's not clear why her marriage was like this. 
for her particularly, even though it was that way for other people as well, but it's not clear why it was for her specifically. But it might have been because her father wanted her to stay at home. Her husband died before she did. It was not clear when, and they didn't have children, and she did not remarry. So as far as descriptions of Tadabai, there was a guy named Garadar Govin Patuk who gave this description. This is a quote. She was a short and dumpy woman with thick glass spectacles on her eyes. There was always a stick in her hand. And then he goes on to say, her face was very cruel looking. She had a very fiery temper. And whenever she saw small children, she would chase after them, hitting at them with her stick. We children used to be very much afraid of her. (laughs) Wow. Um, (laughs) I feel called out a little bit. Like that to me in the future, I think. It was the spectacles, right? Because I felt that too. I was like, all right. The short and dumpy and then chasing children too. Oh, gotcha. Okay, we're coming from different angles here. (laughs) There's a part of that description that I'm like really offended by. And there's, there's a part that I'm like, Good for you. Right. <laughs> That's what born. I aspire to. <laughs> right. And obviously that description of her is very flavored, like clearly coming yeah. from one person's voice. It seems to be weighted with this bias and kind of notions of her that might have been based on her writing because this was a description that came after mm-hmm. her text came out. Mm-hmm. It was published years after her book was released. So that's a little bit about her. <laughs> a little yeah. bit of biased bias information from, <laughs> especially, particularly on the description. Yeah, I feel like that's pretty that's pretty spot on. Again, not knowing her, but like of uh descriptions we could see of feminists to this day where like she's cruel and she's tracing children and basically like oh, a witch. the beginning of being a witch, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, yes. Yes, it's all linked for sure. Those kind <laughs> of like like the person had to be bitter in some way and and mean Ugly, without reason. Usually. It was always yeah. without reason. It's like right. the anchor is never justified. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But on a basic, basic level of the background of what was happening in India, you know, there was there is a caste system which divides Hindus into categories with Brahmins at the top. And so that system dictates how many areas of religious and social life, how they lived, how they married, how they ate, and then gender practices, um, which is very, very deep and rich <laughs> um, practice. Um, and it's also important to remember that Vertically, like horizontally, India is also a huge place. So there are many different practices across that huge, huge land. And people operated under that system in different ways in different areas. And the third point that I would like to make is that there was change in society under that time, under the British Raj. Of course, as always, there's evolution over time. But at this point, specifically in which... Tadabai was speaking, there was change in society in general and in gender relations under that rule. And of course, (laughs) imperialism, as it does, like to stick its dirty fingers in things and had an effect on women in India. And that was situated within the larger context that accounted for the ways women were treated before foreign rule and within that nationalist movement. And There were people of all genders in the mid-1800s who challenged practices that were deemed unacceptable, and they supported issues that they believed would improve women's lives. Those are issues like sati, child marriage, infanticide, the remarriage of widows, education, the seclusion of women, and dowry, and other things that were happening 
Widow, of course, being the term used to describe women who survived after their husbands had died. And then seclusion, as in when women remained in the home, veiled the face, and similar practices that could be stricter for women who were of higher status than those who were of lower status. And you can find writings about this, about people who are challenging these issues for various different reasons, because obviously this is couched in a specific time in a specific culture. So, you know, there were, there were different reasons people were challenging these issues that may have still been rooted in traditionalist ideas um, mixed along with progressive ideas. Just, you know, it, it varied depending on how a person approached them. But in the mid-1800s to the early 1900s, there were many women who authored books, pamphlets, papers, poems, stories, novels, all of those things of the like and essays in Marathi, the language. And Tadabai Shinde did have contemporaries in people like Anandabai Joshi and Pandita Ramabai. So this is where we get to the actual text, which is a comparison between women and men. It's been called a book, an essay, pamphlet, like whatever you want to call it. <laughs> it was a text that was like pretty short, but kind of standard size for pamphlets of the time. On a broad scale, it was virtually unknown until 1975, which was when a scholar of Marathi literature, S.G. Malshi, found it. And before that, there was only a reference to the book in one of Jyotibai Pule's essays. Tadabai's book was published in 1882. And like I said earlier, Rosalind O'Hanlon's translation was published in 1992, which is obviously my introduction to it because I am not, I cannot read Marathi. I cannot, I'm, I can read English and that's pretty much it. <laughs> Very American of me, right? So the way that the story is told, she had a strong response to an article that was written about a young upper caste widow whose name was Vijaya Lakshmi, who was sentenced to death for either an abortion or infanticide under the fear of being shunned. That sentence was changed to transportation for life. The article criticized her and women in general for their morals, calling them modernistic and loose. But as was the case because of the way things were set up, girls were often married to old men and pregnancy, of course, outside of marriage and infanticide were common. Abortion and death while attempting abortion were also not uncommon either. The Widow Remarriage Act was passed in 1856. But as we know very, very well, <laughs> legislation does not remove, just it is, it's not traditional thought just magically disappears and there's no more stigma, no more criticism, punishment in the world is like, ah, now that things are legalized, all's good, everything's cool. No. Um, and that was the case. That was how it was in this case as well. Especially that's how it is in issues of gender and sexuality. <laughs> so in the book, she is, Tarabai is very critical of the patriarchal system. She talks about the criticisms that are directed at women and shows how men are often guilty of the very thing that they're criticizing or at least responsible for it. So if they're not guilty of it, you know, they had a hand in making it so that it was the case for women. And she says in the text, God created all people. So why would God make women the only wicked ones? <laughs> or, or, think about it, or 
do men possess the same faults? <laughs> Let's ponder this. And then like goes on to write about it. <laughs> Hear me out. <laughs> Hear me out. Maybe, just maybe, all people are flawed. And it's funny the way she goes about it. So we'll talk about that. She explored the way society set up men over women, Brahmins over the lower caste, and then the way that the British align with the upper caste and vice versa, the way the upper caste align with the British. The book was printed in Pune and in the Marathi language. It sold for nine annas, which was a monetary unit. And that was a pretty standard price for a pamphlet of that size then. And she gives a disclaimer in the beginning that the book is kind of all over the place, which is fair. But as a personal aside, I feel like you need to go all in on these things. And like the disclaimer just tinges people who are readers with like, Setting them as if they weren't already set up to be like, I don't know about this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you know, when you say something like, you know, this is this is my first try, you know, right. it's gonna be a little all over the place. Sure. Are, oh, I'm really not gonna listen to you now. But that's just <laughs> personally um something that I wish would have been left out. <laughs> but I get it. So in the text, she recounts how women were frequently blamed for the problems that occurred in Indian society. And she says in the introduction that she aims to, quote, defend the honor of all my sister countrywomen. I'm not looking at particular castes or families here. It's just a comparison between women and men. She says there are a lot of quotables in here. <laughs> so, of course, I pulled a lot out, but I, I won't go through all of them. I won't. I won't. I'll spare you that. Oh, but, we love um, quotes. <laughs> yeah, we love quotes. Why not take directly from the source? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so she says that she wants to write about the issues of widow remarriage and how Indian people have taken on British habits, for instance, in the way that they dress. And the customs that she's deemed important are disintegrating because of the invasion of British practices. And she says that it's also because of these men's new interests and desires that the traditional ways of making a living have been disrupted and that's causing suffering for people. And she addresses men directly. And she does that more than once in here. It's kind of like, that's who she expects to be her reader. But she's saying that she's writing the book to gain some sympathy from them for the issues that she's laying out. And she's hoping that they'll choose to take pride in the country rather than abandoning their traditions and customs. And she also hopes that it will inspire men to just treat women better. And she says that it's not the social difficulties of widows that she's concerned with, but this kind of, this dread of widowhood that creates the behavior of married women. And she talks about Pativrata, which is a wife who devotes herself completely to her husband. She criticizes the way that that practice plays out, saying that it's impractical and ridiculous to kind of be unquestioningly, importantly, submissive to a husband that the way that wives are expected to. And she finds it that unacceptable that men are allowed to mistreat their wives and not be questioned, while wives are expected to take that mistreatment willingly and with a smile. So she is very detailed in this and in her description of like, she kind of, she does this anecdotal or hypothetical situation of like the woman's doing this and she's doing this and she's taking care of the baby. How can she get up to stir this thing? And like, he can do that himself. I'm going to tell him to do this. This is not the way y'all set it up for us, that way that we should be. It's not the way that it is in actual practicality. Look at all the things that we're doing in our role as wives and as mothers. There's some lines that I really like. Like there's one where she says, 
If the husband is really to be like a god to the wife, then shouldn't he behave like one? And if wives are to worship them like true devotees, shouldn't husbands have a tender love for them in return and care about their joys and pains like a real god would? Yeah, so she goes through a lot of points here. She calls men's efforts at reform, which was like a lot of men were involved in reform and were also involved in practices that involved women and how they were treated and their behavior. She also questions why women whose husbands die have to hide their faces as if they committed some huge crime and spend the rest of their lives away in a dark corner. And she asks why men don't face the same stigma when their wives die and why they don't have to do things like shave and go live in the wild when it happens. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So she's questioning the double standards, essentially. Like, this is, she just lays out, this is what, how it is for men, and this is how it is for women. Why? You know, just (laughs) posits that question. And the presence of the British is also something that comes up in their influence and how, you know, they were kind of hand-in-hand with some of the, the men in upper caste as well. She says that since British rule began in India, women have benefited from education and have gained more insight on how they should behave and what's good for them and what's not. And of course, the actual reality of that is a lot more complex. But from her perspective, you know, that is one thing that she saw that happened. But at the same time, she talks about the hypocrisy of men for taking on the customs of Europeans, like eating meat and drinking alcohol, But at the same time, they're saying the British government shouldn't meddle in their religious practices. So she kind of called them out on that, where it's like, y'all are caught up in all these things and trying to be, you know, buddy-buddy with the the British who are here and trying to, you know, make that right for you. But at the same time, you're rejecting these Western ideas about educating women and saying that, no, 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 you shouldn't do this. So I'm going to read another quote of hers. She says, women in this world are forever putting up with all sorts of hard toil, difficulty, hunger, and thirst, harassment, and beatings. And all they ask is a kindly word from you. It's true, you go out and earn the money. But she has to see to the running of the house, has to do exactly as you tell her, perpetually obedient, kept in ignorance, toiling at the most exhausting work till her body's pleasure breaks into little pieces, Her bones waste away and her blood turns to water. Her eyes always on your face. Yeah, so, I mean, she was just laying out what the reality is. I think one reason that I really like that quote is because it's pretty image heavy. Yeah. I think that is really helpful in terms of like drawing some of the pathos out of, you know, the arguments that she was making. And it was her truth, you know, and it's something that she wanted to, to point out. And... There's a lot of stuff that's pretty stinging, too. There's a part where she basically says, (laughs) it's pretty funny to me. She says that men are so much more scheming than women are. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. She's like, wow, like, they're manipulative. They can go out and gamble. They do this. They set you up this way. Do women ever do that? And then she's like, well, maybe they do sometimes, but not as much as men. Um, (laughs) She's honest. (laughs) She's honest. Um, She does that a few times throughout the course of the text where she's kind of like, men are this, men are this, like just like laying down the negative qualities of men. And then she goes and says, are women like that? And then she kind of like upholds 
puts puts women on a huge pedestal that I know that I can like you know mm-hmm. I can live up to, and you know it is kind of like a it is rhetorical, right? Even though even if she really felt that way, it's just kind of like well we know this isn't always that way in practice, but she would always pull back just a little bit and say. Of course, there are some women. (laughs) Like, she did that several times. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And the way that she describes women at some points is she called them ignorant, thoughtless, covetous, gullible, but would say, like, that's not on them. That wouldn't be the case if they had more education. And a lot of times this is because of the parameters they had to act within in a society that was patriarchal where men treated them this way and they were inferior, so on and so forth. She also talks about the names that men have given women, like being the gateway to hell, oh storehouse of deceit, oh axe to the tree of virtue. <laughs> yeah, so pretty dramatic, right? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Gives them a lot of power that they don't have, seems. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's again one of those double, like, it's almost to me, not in the system of backhanded compliment of like, oh yes, I am the gateway to hell. Right. <laughs> Let me show you how. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But only with your permission. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is a part that I I enjoy because there are a lot of things. Of course, this is a cross for me as a person who lives and grew up in the United States. Crossing borders and crossing time, you know, um, mm-hmm. it's interesting to see a lot of the things that live here and that have lived over time as well. And there's a part where she says all bad things don't happen because of women, which is, I think, objectively true. <laughs> and if they're going to apply those kinds of titles, like the ones I just talked about to women, then they should apply them to their mothers, which is a thing that I hear in kind of like Twitter rhetoric, you know, right. from time to time. It's like, you're saying these things about women in general, like, right. but, you know, how many, you have these very intimate, direct relationships with women. Would you say that about them? And would you say that directly to their faces? Yeah. Hmm. Um, not so sure about that. So that was definitely... Um, interesting. Mm-hmm. She describes women as more helpless than cows and men as the greatest of all life forms in the universe. And kind of her way of setting up saying, you have all this, and, you know, and look at look at what we have. And apparently kind of like comparisons with cows, using them as a metaphor was something that wasn't uncommon in right. that kind of language. So yeah, I could go on for a long time about <laughs> all of the things that she talked about and the way she put it in the text. Like, she also talked about women in literature, and she also talked about women in sex work. But in the end, it kind of boiled down to, in the end of the text, she said, she just prays for happiness for women. Mm -hmm. This is what I want. I want them to have a better lot in life. I want them to live better lives. I want them to be happy. And she basically posited, like, men aren't men just as flawed as women, if not more, kind of in a way sometimes is what Mm -hmm. she would, the way she would put it. And at the end of the day, she was countering this flawed logic that women were by nature inferior and at fault for everything. And they were deserving of blame and punishment for all those things as well. Mm-hmm. And in it, she does seem to have a tone of righteous anger. So, at least in O'Hanlon's translation, I did read 
a review that basically says that Tarabai's militant tone was kind of downplayed in the translation and that a lot of the metaphors became literal in the translation. So obviously there are the normal pitfalls of translation, you know, who actually was the one who was doing the translating and, you know, they weren't situated in that context. They didn't live at the time and <laughs> they, didn't, yeah. they didn't experience the culture, definitely not in that way. Um, so that was an issue of translation, but obviously the only one that I have access to as an actual reader is English translation. But I do think that a lot of that righteous anger got through, at least even if I didn't necessarily have access to situational and contextual meanings of in idioms and metaphorical things. Right. She definitely, she was mad and <laughs> with good reason and she had something to say and she said it. And in the book, O'Hanlon, in O'Hanlon's book, there's an essay, like I said, that kind of prefaced the actual translation of the text. O'Hanlon mentions that it wasn't until the 1860s and 1870s that women in India began to write and publish insignificant numbers. But there were a lot of things that were published by women before. But she says, quote, Tadabai's is the first text that I know of, for Western India at least, in which a woman addresses herself so squarely and polemically at the question of women's relations with men. Tadabai's book was very controversial for its time in challenging the Hindu religious scriptures as a source of women's oppression and a lot of the conversations around that issue and around things she was talking about, like widow remarriage, and were continued after she wrote it, of course, and continue to this day. And she didn't publish another known work after the book. Immediately following the publication of it, there were newspapers that ran articles on it, kind of, you know, bad-mouthing her, saying, how could she do this? This is wrong. And, you know, ridicule her work. But Poulet did defend her not too long after it was published. But the, the kind of way that sources have put it is that all these people who were speaking out against her were the ones who kept her from creating another work. I think that's speculation. I think that could be for many reasons. But yeah, she that that's kind of how it's how it's put. And Pule also later suggested that all the criticism that she got because of it was because the guys, basically the guys felt hurt by it. They felt called out, you know, like they were pointed to. And they were the ones who were <laughs> publishing the articles in the newspapers. But yeah, she died in 1910. I'm not sure how she died. But this one work is kind of her a pivotal thing and, and her as a voice of feminism and as a voice who spoke up for women's rights and positions in her society at the time. Yeah, I do think... It's really interesting reading the quotes and hearing you say them, that there are obvious differences between like historical and cultural differences. They, they do still like resonate with me. And I remember being younger when I didn't have like the nuances or like tools or words to state what I was feeling. I'd be like a nine-year-old and I'd get in fights with my mom of, why are you the one that has to do this? Like all mm -hmm. of the, my brothers are capable my dad is capable. I don't mm -hmm. understand why if one of them wants ice cream in the middle of this movie, which is a very specific memory I have, <laughs> you're the one that has to go up and get it. Like, I don't, it's not fair. <laughs> like, I, yeah. And, you know, 
obviously there were things, complexities and nuances that I did not understand at that time, but just kind of that similar idea of what she's saying of like, uh, that double standard. Why are we just expecting this of women and then blaming them for all evils? Yeah. (laughs) I like that. She does call that out. The the way that this doesn't make sense. How are you going to say the powerless are the ones that are powerful and destroying things when they've had, again, no power to make change? How is it their fault when you're the ones in charge and it's still crumbling. Like, I do like her calling out the irony of, this can't be right. It can't, it can't be both. It's one mm-hmm. or the other. So we need yeah. to stick to one. But yeah, I think, Annie, I, th- I thought of that too throughout this whole story. It kind of just reminds me, which makes me sad at the yeah. same time of like, oh God, things haven't changed that much. I can't believe she was so revolutionary, but it wasn't revolutionary to the point that people were fighting then for those rights. That we're mm-hmm. still fighting for those same rights in different contexts. Because growing up in a very religious home, that whole mandate of men are power, men are representations of God, and you're representations mm-hmm. of his like loved one that will take care of you. And therefore, this is the way the layout is. And you have to trust it no matter what with blind belief. And, say, and this is how this is going to be okay. Everything will work out if you allow it for this way. And if something goes wrong, it's because you didn't do right. what we said when you were supposed to follow me as, you know, because I have a penis. But like, it's kind of this whole like level of trying to figure out how the system is still being upheld. And mm-hmm. we know how, and we know why. But at the same time that it continues to be questioned and people keep getting angry and then it just kind of fizzles out. And then kind of, you know what I mean? Like it just kind of not yeah. fizzles out and that, that one person comes out and then a new revolutionary has to come out and t- have this conversation repeatedly, even to like, it's so cyclical. Like I'm like talking about religion and it mm-hmm. went from, you know, marriage to this and that and and finally coming to the point of like, well, maybe women should be a little more equal. Let's mm-hmm. let's let's give them that due mm-hmm. to going, but we're that this is what's wrong with our country. We have, you know, the old fashioned ways are gone and now for the lack of better terms, cancel culture is ruining our, our you know, country type of conversation. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like so sad that it continues to be, I thought we already got past this part. I yeah. thought we'd made progress here. And I thought we were going to go right. to the next session. It just seems so like... It's tiresome, tiring. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the... There, it resonates with me is the fact that it does makes me both very like tired and sad but also relieved but yeah because it's like well it's the 1800s she was doing this and I can still relate to the issues she's speaking to in 2020 2021 I mean even the conversation of being childless because I know that was something that she had to talk about it's okay a woman is not evil a woman is not failing because she did not have a child can mm-hmm. we get past this? Like, even in that conversation, we still have doubts about whether that's right or wrong. <laughs> like, are you actually doing, are you actually a real woman fulfilling your duty if you didn't have a child? Yeah. You know, it, that's still a conversation today. <laughs> yeah. Many layers to So many. Many layers to it. There are. And I really enjoyed all of the quotes that I've read. I want to find the whole thing and read it because I did appreciate kind of the but felt like sarcasm almost. Yeah. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. 
<laughs> was she? I think at the beginning of was she the beginning of snark? Maybe a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of like satirical kind of like I don't. Yeah, there was a lot of language in there that to be enjoyed. That was pretty. Um, what would you call it? More artistic. You know, mm-hmm. she took a lot of artistic license with the language. And when you talked about your um, the specific ice cream moment, she had a lot of that too, where she was. There was a lot of specifics that she used and the things that she had to do and what she had to cook and and what her day-to-day looked like. You can tell right. she was speaking from a point that was a very personal perspective and thinking about what she had to do for a husband and, and things that she probably saw other women specifically do for their husbands because that was kind of the standard practice. And yeah, it's it's very uh it's it's worth it's worth reading. It's not long either. Um, I think in the in the translation of the book, it's like fifty or so pages, and there is even though as reviews have said, the essay that O'Henlin did is imperfect, and it's kind of the way that it contextualizes the things she was saying. It does offer a lot of perspective and the things that I am not well versed in. You know, when it comes to Hinduism, when it comes to caste, when it comes to the ways that gender relations worked back then and the things that she she had to challenge. It's definitely worth a read, and not only because of that, but also because it can relate to so many things that are happening today. Yes. <laughs> I I want to I want to seek it out. I want to seek it out. As always, thank you for bringing this to our attention, Eves. Is there anything else you wanted to add before we wrap up? Um. I don't think so. I guess just for like practically for for listeners, I couldn't find it available online. I did have to, I got it from a library. Um, So just if anybody does, practically if anybody does actually want to read it, you'll probably have to seek it out at a library, but it might be one near you. And even if it's not at your library, you might be able to get it through something like an interlibrary loan, which is right. what I had to do. Or one for libraries. Yes. <laughs> yes, plus one for libraries because I guess it's, I often forget that like, people have to know how to access the thing to be able to read it. <laughs> right. um, and a lot of times, things that we talk about, you can find them online. But in this case, um, it's a little bit more difficult to get. But yeah, just that little tip. That's all. awesome. Yes. Yes. I was singing the praises of libraries the other day because I, I used to rent movies from them. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You can rent them for free. It's the best. Yeah. You still can. I love libraries. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Ease, we always love having you. I, I guess we're approaching our 25th. <laughs> well, episode <yeah>. somewhere <laughs> around there cheesecake yes. and champagne y'all yes that, that's a recipe for a headache but while we're doing it it's gonna be great <laughs> uh, <laughs> where can the listeners find you you can find me on twitter at eves jeffco i'm on instagram at not apologizing you can also find me on the shows this day in history class and on the podcast unpopular and yeah, that's it. That's it. Well, also check those out for sure, listeners, if you haven't. But you can also, of course, hear Eve's on this very show. And if you would like to contact us, you can. Our email is stuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast or on Instagram at stuff I never told you. Thanks as always to our super producer, Christina. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 